0: I just found out about this really beauty of a guy who just died a couple years ago. His name was Louis Zamperini, and this is him right here. He's a real famous guy, and there's a movie about him that I saw, but I actually forget most of the details. This guy was a famous Olympian and in 1936 he ran in the Olympics. And back in those days, they called everybody to the war. So Olympians, NHL players, like Elvis was in the war. Did you guys know this? True thing. Anyways, Louis was there, and his plane got shot down, and for 47 days, this guy floated around on a life raft in the middle of the ocean. Imagine one day or two days. It was 47 days, and finally he thought he was going to get rescued. An airplane flew over, and he was so excited. He was, like, apparently waving at this thing, and then it started to shoot at him, and he realized it was a Japanese plane. They brought him in. He was a prisoner of war. And they tortured him, in his words, just day after day, repeatedly. And there was this man that he grew to hate, and he gave him the nickname The Bird. He hated this guy. He looked like a bird. Eventually, he got rescued, and he went back to the U.S., but he had severe post-traumatic stress disorder, and he became a very serious alcoholic. He said that one night he woke up, and he was choking his wife in the middle of his sleep, and, and in his dream... She was the bird. She had so much hatred toward this man that it started to manifest itself in everything. And he started to contemplate suicide. This man was just doing horribly. His wife um, brought him to a Billy Graham conference and he said that it was there that God just radically and completely met him. He said that on the spot, his desire for alcohol was gone. He said that on the spot, he forgave the bird (laughs) He actually started to love the bird, he said. It's the craziest story. And this guy just died at the age of 97. He was, from that point on, he was a preacher, an evangelist, just going from town to town, telling about this new birth. Unbelievable. He said he had a new heart and he never figured it out. This is what Paul describes when he says, it's no longer I that live because all those old desires are gone. It's Christ in me. And Jesus speaks about this as being born again. We've all heard this term, born again, but I'll tell you what, it's something that's very hard to explain to people that aren't Christians, isn't it? When I got saved at Bible camp, I'll never forget September and October at school. These girls kept saying to me over and over, they'd say to me, you sure have changed. I was a different person Before Jesus, I was cynical and I was a bit of a bully with my humor and and I would put people down. And after Jesus, I had a new heart and my classmates just had a hard time figuring out what was going on. And and I'll tell you what, um, the book of Matthew specifically addresses this brand new phenomenon of being born again to a world who had never seen it. Imagine thousands of people getting saved a day And they don't have any context for what has happened to their friends. Paul goes from murdering Christians to being flogged in the streets for being a Christian. They don't know what to do with this. They can't deal with it. And so the book of Matthew was the key source of theology for the early church. Did you know that? Every church had the book of Matthew. It was the most famous book of the Bible by a mile. That's why when they canonized the Bible, it's the first book. Because Matthew was the book. For really a couple main reasons. For starters, it was the most um, systematic and just thorough theology on who Jesus was. It's, the genre of the book of Matthew is gospel, by the way. And gospel is basically a biography. And that is about Jesus. Jesus. So we're going to be studying this biography of Jesus because it's the most um, perfectly put together book that describes him. But secondly, it also ties everything that's happening back to the Old Testament. There's 60 references, and for the Jewish audience, this was really, really cool. But let's be real in this place. We've all seen people get saved. And and I would imagine that 99% of us in this room would say, we're born again. We've we, we decided to follow Christ. And we hear the story of Louis Zamperini and we're like, ugh, oh, I hate that story. You know why? Because it doesn't always look that clean. It, sometimes we feel like we're more of the old person than we are the new person. Yesterday we had a funeral in this room and it was emotional. Like It was, it was difficult. Um, many of you guys know Denver Moore. He, um, he's a part of our community here. And, and he was just a great guy. This was a guy who was born again. And he was incredibly generous. He loved everybody without judgment. This was a guy who was creative. He was smart and he was funny. And, and as his father shared about him, just the thing that kind of came through is the fact that he had this infectious laugh about him. Just a great guy. And he was born again. And and you know what? In the same way that he was a new creation, a lot of his old man also was there. This was a man who, who, who described himself as an addict. And it was eventually fentanyl that took his life. And so I think more of us in this room would relate to Denver. That we're a new creation, yeah, But there's also a lot of the old creation in us. A lot more like him than Louis Zamperini. And Paul says the same things. He says, you know what, I'm not there yet, but I press on. And listen to what he says to the Ephesians. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness and most of us don't walk in the victory of our new life most of us in this room are having a hard time putting on the new self every day according to holiness and the life of Christ and sometimes we don't even know how that looks or how we're supposed to do that and we're sort of somewhere in the middle We're created to have this new creation, and God gave us a new identity that's from Him. Isn't that cool? He's made us a new person, and it's from Him, and it's who we really are, but we just kind of struggle to get there. And so that's what we're going to be looking at right here in the early parts of the book of Matthew. He was a man that struggled, and you know what? I honestly believe that we can leave this place with just beautiful understanding if we make space for the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and to just give us understanding. So let's just pause in each one of us for the next just two minutes. It, it, church is so interesting because it's our family in here and we love each other. And the, But when the Holy Spirit comes, it's just a word for us. There's no one else at the table. It's just us. And he wants to come and just lovingly restore us. So let's just pause, ask the Spirit to fill us like we always do, and just give Him space. So just take a moment in your own heart. Yeah, Jesus, fill us with your spirit. God, I pray that we would come here every week with eager anticipation that Yahweh himself will draw close to us. Father, we love you. God, we each... Have this beautiful inheritance to be new creations, God, with a new identity. God, a new man, a new woman. Father, we want that. We're here to contend for that. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them to Matthew 1. It's the first book in the New Testament. We're going to start off with verse 1, obviously. We're not going to go through the entire genealogy together as a group. We're going to do that. You'll see. Let's begin. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Wow. Matthew starts this off really 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 strong this would have been a Jewish audience and what he's saying straight up is that you're waiting for a Messiah and guess what we all know that he has to both be from the lineage of David and also from the lineage of Abraham and guess what Jesus is that so cool the Jewish audience would have been absolutely shocked they're like how did this even happen And then the rest of the genealogy goes on to prove that this is the case. But Matthew does it in the most unusual way you can imagine. The genealogy that you're about to read, when every kid gets the Bible at camp, they open it up to the beginning and they're like, Matthew 1. They read it and they're like, oh, the Bible's the worst. Because you guys are going to hear a whole bunch of names and it's going to be like the most boring introduction ever to us. If you would have lived 2,000 years ago and you were to read this genealogy, this would have been the most crazy cliffhanger you have ever seen. So this is what we're going to do. Instead of reading it all together, why don't we spend two minutes and each of us read it. Just You can skim it, I don't care. But do your best to do one thing. Think about anything that seems a little bit strange as you read it. Read it and look for things you're like, what in the world is that all about? Because there's some real crazy things that are found in no other genealogies. This is the most significant genealogy in all of Scripture. It is critically important. So let's just spend a few moments, read it to yourselves, and we will reconvene in two minutes. You ready? Everyone have a Bible? And go. Alright, you can keep reading it if you're not yet done, but uh, is anybody here, let's have a little bit of audience participation, think that they know some of the crazy things that they've figured out in this genealogy that maybe are not very normal, show of hands and yell it out, be bold my friends, Davy, there's a prostitute, yes there is, that's weird, several kings, yeah, Anything else anybody noticed? Yeah? There's women in there. That sounded very sexist. Why would you say that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? Brothers are mentioned? Yeah. It's a very interesting genealogy. And you know what? At the end of the day, the thing that is the very most unusual part of the entire genealogy is the fact that there are women in there. (laughs) There would never have ever, never have been a woman in a genealogy. It just never happened prior to this point, And this would be an extremely rare exception. You see, genealogies were created to do this. They were created to show off family privilege and to show beautiful heritage. To show off the fact that this family line has a lot of kings, a lot of good blood. This was saying, you know what, we are a family that is excellent. And all of a sudden it starts off great by saying, guess what? There's Abraham and there's David and then you get into it and there's Tamar. It's like, what? The the audience reading this would have been absolutely shocked. There are five women in this genealogy that are questionable at best. First there was Tamar. This is her. That is not a normal picture for a biblical character. She was married to a guy named Ur. You are. And She was chosen by Ur's dad, Judah, to be his wife. And this guy, Ur, was a bad dude. The Bible says that Ur was so bad that God killed him. Whoa. (laughs) Judah's like, well, sorry about that. My first son was horrible. Here's my second son. She wanted a baby really bad because a woman back then needed a child, preferably boys, in order to bring home um, any sort of income. And the second brother was like, I am not giving her a baby. And as they were married, she, he, she was tricked by him. And the Bible says some crazy stuff about how he did that. <laughs> you can read it if you'd like. But he, uh, he did some early birth control techniques. And, and she wasn't pregnant. And so the father decided this. He said, you know what? You can have the third brother... But the third brother was so young. I can just imagine this. It's like, guess what, Billy? You're going to marry Tamar. And he's just like, oh, no. She would have been way older. And you know what? Time just went on. And the father forgot about it. And it just never happened. Judah never actually kept up with his end of the deal. So she's so desperate to get pregnant, this girl. Guess what she does? She dresses up as a prostitute. And she goes to the temple and she's waiting outside hoping that a guy will pay her so she can have a baby. This is the plan. But guess who shows up to get a prostitute? Judah, her father-in-law. But she is in disguise, and he doesn't have any sheep to pay, and that's sort of the currency, and so he said, I don't have sheep. Here, take my staff as a deposit, and we'll get you the sheep later. They have sex, she gets pregnant, Three months later, he finds out that she's pregnant and by prostitution, and he loses it. He says, this is so against what my family's about. It's a disgrace. Judah was going to kill her. He calls for her, and guess what she does? She hands him the staff and says, the man who's impregnated me owns this staff. (laughs) Crazy. This is Tamar. This is in Jesus' genealogy. This is who he's chosen to represent himself. And then there is Rahab. She's next. So Tamar was pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab actually was a prostitute. She lived in the city walls of Jericho. When Joshua sent in spies, they spent the night at her house, which is sketchy in the first place. When the army looked for them, she hid them and helped them escape. This girl was a prostitute. So in this Breg list of family of Jesus, we see a girl pretending to be a prostitute and an actual prostitute. And then we have Ruth. She's the third girl in the list. Ruth, she was a classy girl. But she was a Moabite. And there would never be mention of a Moabite in a family tree ever. Moabites were considered the grossest of all the people. When Sodom and Gomorrah were burned, God warned Lot and Sarah to not look back and Sarah looked back she turned into a pillar of salt and now Lot is left in the plains without a house without a wife and with his daughters and so they set up a little camp and after a while the daughters are like dad we need to get pregnant this was a thing back then there was no boys in the hills so guess what they did they got their father Lot drunk and they slept with him and they got pregnant, and the boy's name was Moab, and this was the birth of the Moabites. This was in Jesus' family line. Then we have Uriah's wife. Do you guys know who Uriah was? That is the husband of Bathsheba. They don't even mention her. After bathing on the roof of her house, the King David calls her over. She gets pregnant, He gets Uriah killed, and guess what? Now there's this new baby that enters the family line of Jesus. Abraham, David, all these sketchy girls, and then Jesus. What is going on here? And then there is Mary. Now, we know Mary as something like this. But back then, Mary's reputation amongst the Jewish people was horrible. She was surrounded by rumors of sexual scandal and the Jews believed that she was lying and had an affair and was covering it up with the story about being impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Her reputation was horrible. And so all of the readers would be reading this and saying, who are all these people? They see, the purpose of genealogies was to prove that your bloodline was pure, that there was no corruption, and that everyone was of good repute. So you wanted a list that is free of sin and no Gentiles, absolutely at all. But this genealogy does the opposite. Instead of showing the privilege of birth, it does something completely different and it shows off rebirth. You see, here's the thing is that when we're told that the old person is gone and the new has come, that we have a new identity, wouldn't you think that would show up in the genealogy of Jesus? That they actually are new creations, and so they're bragging on not who they were, but who they're becoming? And when the Bible says that there's no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, is it any surprise that females now show up in his genealogy? Because when we're all new creations, the old is actually gone and dead and buried. This is so cool. They have a brand new identity. This is huge. When we were in Los Angeles the first year, we were going to go meet the senior pastor of a church. It was a church that looked just like this. And so we're all like sitting in the pews waiting... For the senior pastor, and I'm expecting a guy like Phil to come out, you know, like suit and tie, like, you know, nice hair. I don't know. He comes out, and this guy comes up on the stage, and he grabs the mic, and he's got all face tattoos, like all over the place. And he starts to speak, and his, his speech and his mannerisms were so effeminate, I thought he was kidding. It actually seemed like he was putting on some sort of an act. And so I'm like, whatever. I'm like looking around, and other people are laughing. And and then he says to us, he says, "How many of you guys are uncomfortable about the way that I am?" And no one puts up their hand. One guy in the back says, "I am. I have some questions about your sexuality." And he's like, "Wow, jeez." And uh, and so then this guy, he like he ditches the mic and he sits on the end of the stage and he starts sharing his testimony. This is a guy who, at eight years old, was abused sexually by his family. And by ten, they sold him into prostitution. At ten. So he's a child prostitute from that point forward. And at 24 years old, as he's running drugs, he meets a man who, who takes him aside and prays for him. And he says this. He says, It felt like there was lightning going up and down my spine. <laughs> He says, I encountered the Holy Spirit. He says, in that moment, I was a new creation. He just said, everything shifted. And, and he went to Bible school right after that. And he became a pastor, and now he's the pastor of this church. And he just said, the old me is horrible. That's not who I am anymore. I'm completely reborn. And this is the story of Matthew, who's the author of this book, by the way. Matthew is a tax collector, and he was born into it. It's not his fault, but this is what it would have looked like. So back then, the tax collectors sat at a booth like that one, and they were publicly, in front of the whole world, the representatives of the Roman army and the sign of being a traitor. Because he has to take money from his own people for the people who are hurting them. And so they hated Matthew. They would have absolutely despised him. They considered them to be traitors. Did you know that if you spoke to a tax collector, it was considered to be a sin? Jewish girls were forbidden to marry tax collectors, even though they were rich. And they weren't even allowed to worship in the synagogue. So get this. Jesus, knowing all of this, approaches Matthew at his table, and he says, follow me. Come, let's go. Follow me. Matthew gets up. He walks away from that booth, and everyone's just like, Jesus, you're not supposed to talk to that guy. You definitely can't touch that guy. So guess where Jesus goes? Into Matthew's house. And they're all outside the house. And they're all just like shouting like, Jesus, like you are the worst. You can't be with that guy. And Jesus says one of the most famous lines in all of scripture. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners To repentance. That is about Matthew. The writer of the book of Matthew in that genealogy. You'd assume that that would be about some horrible person or a murderer. He's talking about Matthew. He's saying, I came to call this guy this sinner. This is who I came. Man, the family line is full of sinners because that's who he redeems, and this is the gospel. Listen to this, therefore if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. This is the gospel, and it radically transforms us and gives us a new heart. Matthew had a boss. He had this little skeevy dude named Zacchaeus, and we've all heard of this guy, I think. But I think we have wrong impressions of him. I found a good picture of him, by the way. Um, From the Jesus film, I like that picture of Zacchaeus. This is the chief tax collector. And you need to know something really important. When Jesus entered the town, we have this story that Zacchaeus is up in a tree because he's too short to see, which may be partially true. But also, Jews weren't allowed to see him, talk to him, or touch him. So in a crowded street, if Zacchaeus tried to walk and people bumped up against him and saw it was him, they would have laid a beating on him. If he left his tax booth and went into the streets... He's done. So he's hiding in a tree because everyone down here wants to kill him. Truth. And so he's in the tree and what happens? Jesus shows up and how his life has changed blows my mind. He says, I'm meeting at your house. They go to his house. Jesus doesn't call him out on his sin. Jesus doesn't point out that he's this skeevy tax collector. He doesn't call him out on anything. He simply pursues him chooses him and is present with him and listen to what happens but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord look Lord here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything I will pay back four times the amount this is big Jesus said to him "Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham Jesus is saying you know that genealogy you're in that Zacchaeus, skeevious guy in town. You are a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to save and seek and save the lost. You see, what just happened here? I think sometimes when, when people are, are sinning or people are living bad lives, we automatically default to pointing out Everything about their life that is not good and sinful. And Jesus did the opposite. He came and he pointed to the new man. Chosen, pursued, worth spending time with. And this changed his heart. He never pointed out the old person. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I love this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Whoa. Whoa. Think about that. It is mortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Mortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You know, at Denver's funeral yesterday, his dad got up, and this is what he did. He said, there's been some men that have been pointing my son into the man that God made him to be. The new creation. The new man. And he pointed out those men. Just in front of everybody. He said, this person. And this person and this person and this person. He was so cool. And I knew Denver. And I knew that there was a lot of people who also corrupted him. And reminded him of who he used to be. And place labels on him labels I honestly believe that labels are a tool of the enemy they remind us and constantly follow us of the person that we used to be but we're trying to put off our old self but these labels keep following us and we're called to instead pursue our new person who is redeemed and perfect this is who we need to be and every one of us lives somewhere between our new creation and our old self. And it's critical that we know how to put off our old person. That's, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. How do we put off our old self? Is it just trying harder? Is it like taking communion? Is it confessing? How do I put off my old self? How do I put on my new self? How do I do this? Listen to how the Bible lays it out. It's super simple. It's so simple. Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Encourage each other every day. The word for encourage in the Greek is this word. It's kaleo. And I love this word. It means to give a title, a name, or an identity. So that means... Every day, we are called to speak out that person's truth and their identity. That's what encouragement is. It's to say, this is who you are. This is your primary function as a believer, by the way. As a follower of Jesus, this is your daily privilege. Listen to what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.17 In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. It's the last days, by the way. We're in the last days. It's the time between the ascension of Christ and His return. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. And then, as if to remind us, of this unbelievable truth. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. This is what happens. This is the primary function of a believer is to prophesy. And I know I talk about this a lot, but it is critical that if we're going to be the church that we get this. What is prophecy? 1 Corinthians 14.3 But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encourage, encouraging, and comfort. We reveal identity in each other. God will speak to me about who you are and will speak to you about who I am. And every time we gather, God speaks to us just about how beautiful each other are and how the new creation, who that is. When we walk in sin, we're reminded of people's past and old person. Am I right? This is how we bring the kingdom to earth. This is how we bring the kingdom to our friends is when we're with them, we ask the Spirit to fill us and we just speak words of life and identity to them. It's not weird. This is how we bring the kingdom into our New Year's parties. We just speak life into people. Guess what happens to the deceitfulness of sin when we speak life into people? It vanishes. This is how we speak life and bring the kingdom into our workplace. This is how siblings live with each other is they just say, God, tell me me who my sister is. Tell me who my brother is. And God will bring to mind who he made them to be. This is the function of the believer. This is what church is. This is beautiful to me. You see, we heal each other, and this is the design. We help each other take off our nasty, corrupted self by reminding them of their new identity. This is the function of the body. I love it. Um, John went to a going away party and he came back all excited. He's my roommate now, by the way. And (laughs) and I was was like, what was so great about it? And he's just like, it was just so full of life and joy. And then he said, I just want to bring the kingdom everywhere I go into every setting I am. And we get to do that in the simplest of ways to encourage each other daily. Kaleo, speak identity so simple we get to do this to our bosses at work to our spouses and to our girlfriends and to our boyfriends and this by the way is what church is listen to what hebrews 10 says about church do not give do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching You see, there it is again, kaleo. It says, do not give up meeting together, but kaleo each other. Speak identity to each other. Every time you get together, speak name and title identity to each other. Every time you get together. This changes church, doesn't it? Church isn't just come here, sit there and listen. That's garbage. Does anyone need that? This is why we don't just sit at home and listen to podcasts. Because podcasts, anyone can listen to way better preaching. That's not what it's about. We come and we gather. And the whole purpose is, okay, I'm going to church right now. I get to encourage each other in this place. I'm going to actually speak identity to my friends when I'm there. Imagine, as you're worshiping, you just pick a friend and just say, ah, I love that person. I'm going to pray for them. God is just going to say, you know what, I made them... And, and just go up and just encourage them. Just what you feel like God is putting on your heart for them. Or have a notepad. And every single time you come to church, you just get to speak life to each other. At the Ark, we do this in our cabins. And it looks really simple. It's just things I love about and then that person. And we'll do that in their cabins. As soon as the door opens when they're done, you will see ten kids fly out of that cabin. Sand is going everywhere. There's grins. There's laughter. Each one of those kids jumps into a boat or the lake or whatever it is, knowing who they are, and on cloud nine. It is amazing. This is what we get to do every single Sunday night, that when we leave here, we just we know who we are. We're reminded of our new self. Not of our old self and those stupid labels. Our new self. We're reminded of them. Because people around us just speak life to us. They just point out things in us that God made us to be. That's how we get to live. And so when you come to this place, come with the heart of, okay, I'm going to encourage people. I'm going to kaleo people. I'm going to speak identity to them as I'm here. And as we're filled with the Spirit, as we worship, guess what happens? The Bible says we will prophesy, which means... We will have words that strengthen, encourage, and comfort each other. That's church. Do you guys want that? That's school. It changes your friendships. If you have a friend who every day is just speaking words of life to you and encouragement, imagine if you start doing that for your teachers. Oh, man. For the pizza delivery boy. Just, they see him coming down the driveway and just be like, God, who's that guy? His name is Peter. (laughs) What do you love about that guy? And then to say, hey, thank you. Thank you for coming. You know what? Um, I just, I, I sense that God is just so proud of you. And then, is there anything I can pray for you for? Just turning every day, like, interaction that we have into something spiritual and beautiful. We get to bring the kingdom of God into every single setting that we're in. I love this. It's reminding each other of our rebirth. what I love that we get to do here every single Sunday night is we get to take part in communion. And this is so beautiful. What we're doing is we're putting off our old self. That's what we're doing. We're putting to death the flesh. That's what this is. We're putting off our old self. And we're putting on our new self. So we're saying, God, I'm, I, you know what? I've, I've picked up some of these traits of my old man. This is who I used to be. And I'm, they're, they're coming back. and 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 the Holy Spirit will bring to mind things that that are not not from Him. Our identity from the Father is the, is the identity that makes us most alive. So what we're going to do is we're going to worship. And I invite you to come forward and, and take communion and just put off the old self, that person that's being corrupted by the desires of the flesh. And I'm going to encourage you as we worship and every single time, not just tonight, but next week and the next week and then next week, to come here with the attitude of, I need to encourage everyone that I'm with today. It's what the Bible says. I need to kaleo them, all of them. Who are they really? They're not the person who uses drugs. They're not the person who I saw drinking at a party two years ago. They're not the person who hurt my feelings. That is the old person. Who is the new person? That person has been put to death. I look at the genealogy of Jesus and all I see is all new creations and he's proud of all of them. Tamar, that's my girl. The Moabites, oh They're my people.